0: Hello and welcome back to Jo's Art History Podcast, a podcast that celebrates all things art historical with me, your host, and your resident art historian, Jo McLaughlin. Hello, it is the final episode of 2023 and I thought as it is a month of reflection, it would be good to look back on some of my best bits from 2023. So I'll be sharing with you five highlights from across my bite size series and season three. And I'll also be mentioning what my most listened to episode was this year or rather most streamed episode was on Spotify this year as of course the season of Spotify Unwrapped is upon us. But first I want to thank absolutely every single person who has listened, downloaded and supported the podcast. I also want to thank the incredible guests that I've had on this year and also anyone that's ever listened and reached out to me or a guest and told them how much an episode means to them or that you really enjoyed it thank you so much it really does mean a lot so without further ado let me get straight into things so as I said, I will share with you five extracts from across my Bite Size series, my season three, which we launched earlier this year, and I'll reveal to you right at the end what my most streamed episode is. So what I'm going to do to you is I'm going to share, first of all, my most shared episode this year, which means it's the most episode that people that have listened to it have either directly shared via WhatsApp or via a podcast link, however, people share these things. Um, and that was, not surprising, my Marina Abramovich episode with the brilliant Gemma Louise. Now Gemma and I actually met up in London uh, a few weeks ago now and we visited the Marina Abramovich exhibition at the Royal Academy of Arts together and we had a really lovely afternoon so thank you so much Gemma. You have taught me so much about Marina and I absolutely loved seeing this exhibition with you. You were like a little encyclopedia and you just really brought the exhibition alive and if you find yourself in London the exhibition is on until the 1st of January and I'm going to share an excerpt with you where Gemma and I discuss one of Marina's most discussed works which is in her retrospective at the Royal Academy of Arts and that is Impomerabilia. I'll let you listen to the extract and then I'll tell you our thoughts and feelings when we visited the show. And tell us a little bit about who he was to Marina and her work?
1: So during her time of creating work, she ended up meeting Ule, who was was a German artist, and they became, in a sense an entity together so they performed like different pieces together they actually formed an identity of a collective which they called the other so that's how they refer to themselves they didn't refer to themselves as a separate artist they just referred to themselves as one form basically as they've described Mer- Marino described herself as like a two-headed body so literally connected in every way shape and form And throughout their art relationship together, but also they had a romantic relationship too, they began exploring concepts such as like the ego and the artistic identity. They looked into, you know, the process and breaking that down, like literally to the core of just being just the form standing there and just... Be- just being there in that moment like they wanted to focus on that energy they could have together the psychic energy the idea of male and female there's quite a lot going off mm. but the main thing that they had to battle with which she has admitted in the past was like the main challenge was their ego as artists <laughs> which was really interesting to me because she has labelled that many times as the main problem because they had to both find a way to put that ego down so that they could become this form that they created as the author within their relation works it was really it, their relationship is really interesting
0: it really is and I remember very briefly touching so I studied art history at university and I remember very briefly in my first year this being this like whistle-stop tour of the history of art and that was essentially the whole first year was like oh we're just going to absolutely fly through it from like the renaissance to present day Yeah, very near the end of the course, there was maybe like 10 minutes on Marina Abramovich and the image they showed us. Now, I can't remember the name of the work, but it's that very, very iconic work where Uli is, he is essentially holding a bow, an arrow, and she's leaning back on the bow. I think energy something it's called. Energy. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the second word is. And it's all about essentially that the, the, the bow is, the, the arrow rather, is aimed at her heart. And it's all about, as you see, losing that ego, becoming one entity and completely trusting mm-hmm. the person. And as an artist, of course, that you train and you you develop your own practice to then suddenly come together with someone and say, oh, no, we're going to take this forward together to fully let go of you as a one person to then hold someone's hand and like any relationship doesn't Mm -hmm. like you have to let your ego drop and you have to compromise and meet in the middle in order to progress forward um I the only people I can really think of that have done that successfully and continue to do that are Gilbert and George but it's Mm -hmm. kind of like when I was thinking about it earlier it's like your whole life then becomes a performance piece surely you're giving up your yeah. solo identity to become the other like this because it was a work of art it was a performance piece in itself even them just being together and one of the works the next what we're going to talk about was I don't was it one of the first they ever did together or was it very early on in their sort of working career
1: I think it was one of the very first that they did. It was definitely like one of the earliest pieces that they did. Yes.
0: (laughs) Okay. Do you want to tell us about it? Because I was going to attempt to say it. Imponderable.
1: Oh gosh, you go. So, imponderabilia is how I'm going to pronounce this piece. And basically, this is one of the first early works that Marina and Ulay did together as this collective form of one entity. And the concept was, I believe, um, I can't remember what museum this was exactly at, but they were just com- both completely mo- nude and they stood in the doorway To the that was of the entrance to this museum. The only way the public could get into the museum to see the works that were within there is they had to go in between those two people in order to pass. And in doing so, they had to choose which one of them to face, so whether they were going to face the male or the female. So, and the, the space in between them, it wasn't like a large space. Like you think of like entrances to like museums around now and so on, it's like a huge thing. This was so it enclosed so small and you instantly were stripped away of any privacy, any form of dignity. As soon as you went through there, you had to face that and literally you would be clambering through the bodies, like making contact with both. And it was a tight squeeze in a sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've, um, I found a, a video to it, which I'll leave in a link in the show notes below and essentially in the video there's like a small voiceover and it's essentially it's a video taken from one of the participants because what the participants didn't know is that Mm -hmm. it was being filmed which was a very important thing for the other to do uh, for Marina and Uli to do and it's essentially it's them discussing how uncomfortable they were to begin with and that Uli had actually had built the doorway, had essentially built things to sort of sit into it to make yeah. it narrower. And so people could, as you've just said, purposely they had to squeeze between them. But from Marina's recalling of it, as you've just put, people had to choose which side they were going to go through. If they were, going to, face, or if they were yeah. going to face Marina. Most people chose to face Marina. What's your
1: thoughts on that? I feel that? like in a way that's because I think It's the whole male female hierarchy in a way. Like, if you think of a male, like in those kind of times, they would have thought that's a bit more Mm. of a masculine kind of thing to face. Like, it's a bit more head on. Whereas a female may, in some people's minds, like psychological so in like some psychological uh, ways so in looking at it it's more forgiving it's more like nurturing it's more like the, we go when you think of like growing up you go to the mother figure for comfort whereas obviously the father figure mm. is more would have traditionally been right I'm going to be the one that goes out to work I'm the one that has to do all the grift and graft and all of that stuff like so I feel like that kind of comes into play with it when it comes into the choosing yeah
0: I think that's a very amazing way to look at it, and mm-hmm. I didn't think of that as a way of seeing it as like the mother figure that you turn towards as you come in, because in the image that you sent me, which anyone listening, I'll put the three images up on my highlights reel in my Instagram under the number of this podcast episode. and and I'll share them mm-hmm. on my Instagram as well. The image that you shared, it's two men going through and a woman. The men are facing towards Marina, and the woman is facing towards Uli. And I found that a really interesting, that that's what they had chosen to highlight um, as the artists. They had chosen those three works, those three images in particular, to show people a snapshot of what it was about. And I think it's no accident yeah. that it's men and a woman and that they're facing who they're facing. I found it as, so I saw it in a bit more of a Mm -hmm. studier way than than I did, Um, I saw it as a very natural male instinct to want to face Mm -hmm. a naked woman and sort of have that opportunity, that sort of lads moment, if you would, to sort of brush against her with no, um, with no consequences. Um, a bit like what happened in Rhythm Zero absolutely no consequences here again how often are men no strings attached invited to rub against very very briefly a beautiful mm-hmm. woman and then continue on in their day um, if that was an installation now in London it would never close <laughs> down people would it would be the number one attraction in London actually Gemma have we just come maybe up with million have. dollar maybe idea? we let's
1: do something <laughs>
0: So as you can probably tell from that excerpt, we did not know Mpomberbilia would be on display at the Royal Academy and that Marina would employ people from her Marina Abramovich institution to perform the piece throughout the length of her retrospective at the Royal Academy of Arts in London. Now, I've actually seen the exhibition twice since the release of this podcast episode. Now, Gemma and I recorded this back in, oh my goodness, perhaps August of September, 2023. And the exhibition opened at the end of October, beginning of November. And as I said, I've seen it twice, once on my own and once with Gemma. And the first time I went and was stood in front of this work where you have to move through to performance artists, I initially was like, not a problem, I can do this really, really easily and I got up to them, waited in a little line and then when it came to my turn I completely checked out and I had to do a few laps of the exhibition room before I could like pluck up the courage and I really had to like sit with myself and be like why are you finding this so difficult and I think it was just very confronting and there was this whole dialogue internally where I was like oh my gosh, who do I face? Do I face the man? Do I face the woman? What do I, what do I want to do? And then the moment I was like, just take a deep breath and I faced the female. And once I did it, there was like this moment of like euphoria. Like I had like broken some kind of rule and it was was such a weird feeling to be confronted with that and told this is your only way through. Now, there was a little side room that you could walk through if you didn't, if you really didn't want to do it you could skip it but I felt um it would have been a a missed opportunity and something that I would walk away from and kick myself and when Gemma and I were there uh there was there was quite a big queue and there was someone very quickly moving you through um so you really didn't have a lot of time to think about it whereas um when I first went on my own there was a there was a real there was no one sort of pushing me to sort of move through the the artwork and I would really love to hear anyone that's listened to this that also went to the Royal Academy show I would love to hear your thoughts and if you also were hesitant and I've had a few colleagues that have gone to the show and this really seems to be the work that sticks with people and yeah very interesting and I'm sure I'm sure there'll be about a thousand psychology papers written about it in the future I'm not too sure but it was great to see something recreated for the first time since the 70s and it was really great to do that with Gemma. Now moving on to my second highlight of 2023 in the podcast and that is something that's a bit personal to me. That is um, my first episode of season three. Um, If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I accidentally took a year off, um, life happened, someone wasn't well, uh, they're all fine now but uh, when life throws things at you other things move down your priority list which I think is completely fine and relatable but I was thrilled to be back and we actually my first episode was uh, something that's becoming a bit of a a bit of a season regular um in that it's a famous art cameos in movies with my younger sister, Nico, who uh, everyone seems to love when she's on the podcast. She is just really funny and passionate and my person that I always bounce art ideas off of and she's always keen to get on and you guys really love when she's on. So this time round, we did famous art cameos in television shows and I'm going to share an extract where I discuss an incredible work from noah davies called 1975 brackets eight and it's in a show called blackish and here you are i hope you enjoy i'm gonna kick this off interestingly i kind of struggled to find a second one the first one i instantly thought of because i'm currently watching the program and it's a painting that appears in a series called blackish have you ever watched blackish
2: I've never, I've only seen clips of it, the promoter clip on Facebook. And I do, every clip I see I really like it. It's a show, I think it's like on my watch list, to be honest.
0: It's really, really good. It was one of these things I wasn't too sure about. And I started watching it and the characters, you just completely fell in love with them. So Blackish is, the whole series is based around this, the family called the Johnstons. And it's sort of classic sort of family, mum, dad, four kids. They eventually, spoiler alert, have a fifth kid. <laughs> Your grandparents live in the house, but they're very, very wealthy and affluent black family in America. And the show, as well as sort of following the ins and outs of like daily life, it deals with society themes and topics, issues, conversations around being black. Mm-hmm. And they do this in an amazing way throughout the show. They deal with things like segregation, colorism, calling the police when black people are involved violence against black people and there was a really brilliant episode recently on black artists because Andre who's the main character in the series he's a very wealthy advertising director and he has lots of paintings throughout his house and one of the episodes he sort of goes around and sort of talks about the paintings and the painting that I'm going to talk about so if you know the series it is the painting it sits above the fireplace in the Johnson's home in blackish and it's by an artist called Noah Davies, and it's called 1975, brackets eight. And it was painted in 2013, which is really interesting because it's a very contemporary painting because it was painted in 2013, but the series started in 2014. The artist died in 2015. And Andre always uses, spot the painting in the series as a nod to the fact that, there's a thing that Black people can't swim. And Mm -hmm. it's a nod to the fact that public swimming pools were a place of segregation and Black people very often were not welcome in these spaces. Mm -hmm. And Andre himself, if you watch the series, there's a whole sort of thing through it where he can't swim and he pretends that he can. And when he goes to pool parties, there's always something that happens. And it's a nod to the fact that he can't swim, but Black people can. Mm -hmm. And it's all about being included in spaces that were predominantly white. I think it's a beautiful painting. And funnily enough, I saw it at Freeze. Not the real thing, but they had a solo booth at Freeze Masters. And it was a nod. There was just a little sort of printout of it as one of his inspirations. And I said at the stand, I was like, oh, that's the painting in Blackish," And then I knew we were recording this. This was literally yesterday. Yeah. I was like, perfect. I've got my first. I've got my first. <laughs> that's how it happened. Yeah. If you haven't seen the show, it's flipping brilliant. They really deal with issues surrounding the Black community really, really well and break it down into various sort of manageable, digestive chunks. And it really, really makes you think in a really great way. And I actually feel like I've learned a lot from the show. There was an episode particularly around colorism and the different sort of range of essentially Black skin tones. Yeah, And I'm currently, I've created an exhibition at work called Art as Expression, and it's 18 emerging Black artists. And one of the series that from a photographer in the show was called Blackish. So it's a lovely little link. But anyway, so this painting by Noah Davis, it's very, very beautiful, but also very subtle. It's essentially, and I've sent it to you online and if you're listening at home, so I'll send it to you online, Nicole, but if you're listening, <laughs> to this, you can go onto my Instagram and go onto whatever episode number this is in my highlights reel, and you'll see an image of it there. I might even post it on my main grind. And I think I might do an episode on Noah Davis. He's really, really interesting. So he was born in 1983 and died in 2015. And for anyone that can do fast math, he was 32 years old when he died. 32. And he was really a visionary in terms of black portraiture and black depiction. He painted what he knew. He worked from photographs, from real life projects and was based in LA. He trained in New York, but actually he never finished his degree and he moved to LA. And he was so enthralled by art his whole life he actually owned an art studio when he was 17 years old so it was something that he always painted he always always painted he loved to create and when he moved to LA he met his partner and in 2012 they opened this space called the underground museum in Arlington Heights which is in LA and it's a predominantly working class black area and the idea of this space was to bring museum quality art to the community that otherwise had no means and his studio was directly across from this but what's really beautiful about this painting is it's actually from an old photograph that his mum has taken um in 1975 hence the name and there's a whole series of them that's why it's number eight is also in the title ah. so it's a whole series of black people in swimming pools and in this one in particular you're kind of you're almost sort of seeing the viewer, you're sitting on the edge of the pool and you're just kind of watching someone dive in because you can't see the whole pool in its entirety. And what's really unusual is that, as it says in the exhibition catalogue that I was reading, it's just Black people in the painting. Yeah. And again, predominantly in history, these was this was a space of segregation. So it's him sort of reclaiming these spaces for Black people and inserting them back into the narratives that they've been throughout history shunted from. So it's a really, really beautiful, beautiful painting in that respect. It's very lightly painted. It's nothing too sort of jazzy, bang in your face. It's just really subtle and beautiful. And I really, really love it. Some other just sort of beautiful facts about Noah Davis. After he died, his estate was taken over by David Zivona. And that is one of the biggest contemporary galleries in the scene. And he had a solo exhibition in London, funnily enough, in 2021, where... The curator of the underground museum which is still going and his wife sort of co-curated the show in partnership with David verna and this piece wasn't exhibited itself but number nine in the series was and they recreated what the back room of the underground museum looks like it's a really beautiful painting and just something that i really love knowing the series really well having watched it Anyone that hasn't watched it, watch it. It's, it's an amazing series. I completely understand and really respect Kenya Barris, who is the writer of it. I really respect him as a writer and as an artist. And yeah, I think it's a very sort of powerful piece and everything, I don't know, it's just very clever. Like it's a very subtle addition that's continuously referred to. But actually when you look into it, it's very, very powerful in what it's trying to communicate. And that is the first piece.
2: It's gorgeous. As you mentioned, you did send me it. A- that teal blue is so rich and I just want to dive in as well and it does it just feels like you're sitting on the side of the pool watching just this beautiful day it's just chef kiss absolutely stunning
0: so there you are. And if you've never watched Blackish, I would thoroughly, thoroughly recommend that you do. It is an incredible show. And there's like four or five spin offs to it now, which are also fantastic. If you're a Disney plus person, you'll find them on there. Okay, the third extract that I'm sharing is the episode that I'm most proud of this year which is my bite-sized Bridget Riley and I'm going to share an extract with you now. Bridget Riley is an artist that I knew the various basics about and what I'm doing here is giving you a whistle stop tour of essentially who she is and her relationship with colour. I hope you enjoy. And again this was in 1960, 1961. So a full five, six years after she left college, she was still experimenting and finding her style. And the story goes that in 1962, she had her first streak of luck when sheltering from a rainstorm in a gallery. She was offered a show after getting to know the gallerists there. And when the show opened later that year, it was met to wide critical acclaim across London. I've got a wonderful quote here from a programme that I've been listening to today on Bridget. And this is a small extract on the artist speaking herself on her paintings and what she was trying to do during that time.
3: My paintings are not concerned with the romantic legacy of expression, nor with fantasies, concepts or symbols. I draw from nature. I work with nature, although in completely new terms. For me, nature is not landscape but the dynamism of visual forces, an event rather than an appearance. These forces can only be tackled by treating colour and form as ultimate identities, freeing them from all descriptive or functional roles.
0: So what she means by this here is that she is exploring the feeling of a situation or her experiences rather than visually depicting them As realistically as possible and essentially that's what she's trying to do in her artwork and her titles for her paintings give that away particularly in this period. I find Bridget Riley really quite impressive because her work like anything that looks simple is actually incredibly complicated to put together and these abstract pieces some of which I'll I'll share on my Instagram are Exceptionally complicated and intricate, and they're all hand drawn, which is just incredible. Hand drawn and hand painted. Now, as I said, she exploded onto the art scene in 1962 and took London by storm. And this coincided with the rise of op art experiences. Now, op art, if you're wondering what that is, is Optical art. It was a rise in the public's want and desire for psychedelic optical illusions and experiences. And Bridget just so happened to coincide very beautifully with the rise of these experiences and interest within the general public. Now, she wasn't inspired by this, but it was just weirdly godlike timing, if you ask my opinion. And she was so successful that the big dogs came, Colin. That's right. In 1965, this is just three years after she's taken the London art scene by Storm, or the British art scene by Storm, rather. In 1965, Riley made her debut in the United States. The Museum of Modern Art had an exhibition exploring op art, and it was called The Repossessive Eye. And they loved Riley's work so, so much that they actually put her work on the cover of the exhibition catalogue and all the exhibition posters and advertising that they took out, which for that to happen to a young British artist in New York at that time, a female British artist at that time is just unbelievable However, it wasn't all sunshine and daisies. Off art was something that was taking the world by storm throughout the early 60s. And it was leaking into television culture, it was leaking into fashion, illustration, you name it. And it said that when Riley touched down in New York, she was slightly taken aback and disgusted by the fact that she'd be driving through New York and she would see essentially reproductions of her paintings on dresses and pieces of fabric and bags and things like that because essentially her ideas had been ripped off by designers and turned into high-end fashionable clothing. and the story goes that she tries to she tries to actually sue a designer when she gets to New York because essentially were, she was like this is a rip-off of my my paintings and she was told tough luck and that she couldn't sue For Riley, I've got a quote here saying that she said it would take at least 20 years before anyone looks at my paintings seriously again. I've got another fabulous quote from Riley on the importance of optical art and why it was important and what she's trying to do. So I'm going to play that now for you.
3: Rhythm and repetition are the root of movement. They create a situation within which the most simple basic forms start to become visually active. By massing them and repeating them, they become more fully present. Repetition acts as a sort of amplifier for visual events which, seen singly, would hardly be visible. But to make these basic forms release the full visual energy within them, they have to breathe, as it were, to open and close, or to tighten up and then relax. A rhythm that's alive has to do with changing pace. And feeling how the visual speed can expand and contract. Sometimes go slower and sometimes go faster. The whole thing must live.
0: So there you have it. And I think what's very important to mention at this stage, because I think I failed to mention it, until when Riley burst onto the scenes in the 1960s, when we think of her work now, it's very colourful and bold, but actually all of her work was in black and white throughout the 60s. She really didn't start introducing colour until 1967 so her whole success to this point has been a monotone palette and she very very slowly starts to introduce colour back in to her work. And this is something that again she looked back to Surah and Monet and the Impressionists and Post-Impressionists here and essentially taking lessons from the greats that have come before her. And I've got a final beautiful, beautiful quote that I'm going to share with you now about what the impressionist did in terms of colour and what she was trying to achieve.
3: Of course, colour as light and colour as paint behave in quite different ways. It was artists like Monet and Seurat who taught us to make paint behave as light does by dividing up the colour on the canvas so that it works optically only mixing in the actual process of seeing it. Seeing it is when the painting starts to live. That is when it begins. Everything else is like setting the stage before the curtain goes up on the drama itself. Oh, I
0: just, I love that so much. I think it's always so brilliant to hear an artist speak about their influences and their thought processes. And I actually think Bridget Ehrle is so... I've been reading about her she's so intelligent and so clued up on her art history she really understands people that have come before her she's learnt her lessons from them and applies that to her very very contemporary pieces and again I just think it shows you that art history is so important because it does impact today. So the extracts that I share within that where you hear Bridget speaking is from a BBC documentary where Bridget Riley essentially lets a film crew into her studio and it's this incredible documentary. It's about an hour long and if you're in the UK or you can stream it somehow, I would thoroughly recommend that you do. It was such an incredible insight into her practice, her history and it really, really amplified my appreciation for what she does. Um... But it really is also incredible in that she's very supportive of fellow artists. And earlier this year, I got to interview an artist that works in one of her artist studio spaces. So in the 70s, she founded this group of artist studio spaces called Spaced. And there's six or seven of them across London now. And I had never been inside a, a space studio before. So that was a real thrill and a lovely tie back to what I do in the podcast, and how that amplifies out into my contemporary practice as a contemporary art curator and consultant. Now, the fourth extract that I'm sharing with you is actually an episode that I've really struggled with um, to record. Now, I'm only human, that's no secret. And sometimes when you know you have to do some work, you just really can't be bothered. And this episode is one that the morning I sat down to write this episode, I just thought, I cannot be bothered. But once I got into things, I was so thrilled that I was like disciplined enough to sit down and do it. And that is my episode on Sarah Lucas's Paulina Bunny. And it's a an artwork that's so iconic within contemporary art history. Sarah Lucas, very famous YBA artist. She has an incredible retrospective, currently happening at Tate. And this episode when i walked away from it having recorded it and edited it and put it out into the world i was like yeah i'm actually really proud of that and i feel it was a real turning point for me in terms of getting back into the swing of podcasting and researching and i really hope you enjoy it and actually something i want to share is that i really struggled with this episode and when it got put out i got a lot of really good reception from it and i've got a lot of very it's one of my most streamed episodes this year and somehow someone at Tate listened to it and I was invited along to the opening of Sarah Lucas's Happy Gas exhibition. So it was a real moment in perseverance and you just never know when you don't think too far ahead of what the consequences of putting something out can be and you just do it Um, not only did I learn something about an incredible artist I then was given an unbelievable opportunity to see the exhibition uh, before the rest of the world did and I just had such a great time so if anyone at Tate is listening thank you very much for that that was a really special morning and a complete highlight of my 2023. So here we are an episode on Sarah Lucas's Pauline Bunny. Now, Pauline Bunny is one of eight Bunny Girl sculptures which were originally formed for the installation Bunny Gets Snookered, which, as I've previously mentioned, was first shown in 1997 at Sadie Cole's gallery in London. These eight mannequins were all individually titled Bunny, except for Pauline Bunny, who was the skinniest of all the bunnies. And something that I didn't know is actually Pauline... Bunny is named after Pauline Daly who was the assistant to Sadie Coles and I'm not too sure if she's still the assistant but at the time she was the assistant to Sadie Coles and this corresponds with Pauline Bunny's status as the most important and seductive of all the bunnies within this installation piece and art historians have debated amongst themselves this is because contemporary fashion prefers the skinniest female form. As I said, the installation was called Bunny Gets Snookered. And to create the sculptures, to give you a sense if you're listening at home and you've never seen what this looks like, first of all, I would thoroughly recommend that you give this installation, and particularly Polly and Bunny, a Google. They are incredibly strange, elongated and yet somehow very feminine forms so to create the sculptures look as stuffed nude colour stockings with cushion padding and twisted them into weird hybrid and elongated body forms and gave them features such as legs and arms as well as what has been noted as elongated bunny ears but not bunny ears what we would suggest a very sort of abstract air quotes, bunny ears, and it's been suggested that the glamorous and feminine connotations that stockings normally carry by stuffing them full of sort of very benign material, such as cushion paddings, is a way of sort of demystifying and reclaiming their context as just an item that women use instead of this very sort of overly sexualized item. Now, each bunny within the installation comes in a slightly different alteration, be that a different colour of their stockings that they're wearing, a different presentation as to how they are arranged or a different piece of furniture that they're sitting on. Now, they all sit on chairs, but some of them sit on new office chairs, reclaimed office chairs. Some of them sit on hardback seats some sit on what looks to be like school chairs that you would sit on when you were little but what lucas does do with each piece is sprawls the figure's legs in a very seductive and suggestive way which exposes what would be and the bunnies if you will in each chair as well as having their legs very sort of suggestively laid out they're also in very sort of slacked kind of defeated positions where they're sort of imitating that they are post-coitus. Some historians and some of my readings said they look very drained, they look very conquered, if you will. And this is supposed to represent the object becoming a stand-in for an unresponsive sexuality, bored with desire and impartial to violence. So it's a slight commentary on women taking And owning their own sexuality instead of being these things that are merely there to please their sexual partner. It challenges the male gaze and sort of reflects that back onto women to say, take charge, you are not this thing, you are a powerful, powerful being. Now with this in mind, let's go back to Pauline Bunny, who is the main star of this installation, if you will. And Pauline Bunny can be defined because she's wearing black stockings and this corresponds to the highest value snooker ball on the table. Now all the other bunnies as I've said they're in different presentations, different furniture and they're in different coloured stockings and each stocking refers to a different coloured ball on the snooker table but Pauline Bunny is wearing the black stockings corresponding to the black ball which is the highest value ball in snooker. and. It's also showing that because it's the highest value ball, it's the only sculpture that Lucas deems worthy enough to name. I find this endlessly fascinating and a real on-the-nose commentary on society and how we covent one, one thing, the it girl, the moment, and... What I would like to add into all my other readings that I've found, and haven't, this is my personal opinion and this, is Pauline Bunny is seen as the it girl, and although there are seven other bunnies that are doing and looking more or less exactly what she's doing, she has had the importance placed on her because she is the thinnest, she is the sexiest, she is the one worth noting, she is the one in the spotlight where the others are just other bunnies. I find that as a woman a very interesting commentary and I would like to point out here that you have to remember this was made in 1997. This was before a time of everyone having a mobile phone in their pocket. The internet was not a thing that everybody had access to. You had to physically go into these gallery spaces and see these things. You couldn't just google them like I've done this morning and done a little bit of research on it I can see why I can really see why when this was shown it blew people out of the water it started a conversation and a really really punchy one and and I love it and again I would just thoroughly recommend that you google these images they are wildly seductive and and interesting to look at and think about in the context of when they were first shown and how that translates now. Anyway, so Pauline Bunny, she's the only one worth noting. She's in her black stockings, corresponds to the the main ball on the table. And the black stockings are also used as a more sort of traditionally alluring, if you will, sexualized item of clothing. So it sort of represents her as the main seductress within the installation. However, any power within Pauline Has the seductress, is very much subdued by her stance and positioning within the chair. And she's very much clipped into the chair. All the bunnies have this big, quite chunky clip that holds them in place within the chair, which very much takes out the idea that that these sculptures are there of their own accord. They have been positioned there for the male gaze. And I find that a really interesting thing to sort of ruminate on, now, this was one of my bite-sized episodes, as I said. So this was supposed to be a series of short, 10-minute long... um chunks into a specific artwork or artist and this was my way of reintroducing myself to podcasting after accidentally taking a year off and I'm really really proud of a lot of these episodes particularly the Pauline Bunny episode so please do go back and listen to it. It's a little bit longer than 10 minutes, about it's about 13 or 14 but it's well and truly worth it and this is such an iconic work of art from Sarah Lucas and something that she continues this series in her current practice now. So if you're wanting to find out where it all began and you've only got 13-14 minutes to spare, then please do give it a listen. It's a really good episode, if I do say so myself. And finally, as I said at the beginning of this episode, I will share with you my final extract, which is my most streamed my most streamed episode this year which interestingly is not an episode I released in 2023 it's actually an episode I released back in 2021 and really brilliantly it's another episode with my sister Nico and that is Alphonse Mucha and Art Nouveau. This is an episode I haven't listened to in a very 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 long time so it was lovely to go back and dive into it to find an extract for you all and actually what I'm going to do is share with you the beginning of the podcast because I think Nicole does such a fantastic job in taking you through the ins and outs of the Art Nouveau movement, Alphonse Mucha and does it in a way that's so accessible and relatable. What I really try and do in this podcast is make my conversations around art and art history as easy as possible, as relatable as possible and I've just been in too many rooms throughout my career where people are throwing around big words that just mean the artwork's blue or the artwork's swirly and it looks really nice and I think there is a time and a place for academic language. However, I don't feel that my podcast needs to be that sort of place. Um, I really enjoy that I can just have very relatable conversations with people and I'm absolutely thrilled that this has been the one that most people start with. So if you're interested in listening to it, it's episode 19. So way, way, way back at the beginning of the catalogue. We're over 60 episodes now um, and it was lovely to see this pop up and Nicole was thrilled as well when I told her this was The most streamed from 2023. So this is a small excerpt from Alphonse Mucha and Art Nouveau with Nico Paws, a.k.a. Nicole McLaughlin, my sister. So kind of just for everyone listening and for actually myself as well, (laughs) what is Art Nouveau and does it have like very distinctive characteristics? Is there certain, did it run in a certain time frame, certain colour palettes what did it embrace as a movement and, you know, kind of key artists sort of thing like that?
2: So Art Nouveau was most popular in the late 19th century, early 20th century. So that was between the 1890s to the 1910s. The best way that I could describe Art Nouveau is its very dreamy, romantic, magical style. It's mm. just very decorative. Yeah. Um, the movement covered vast areas. So this was architecture, jewellery, interior design, and painting and illustration. It was very much a movement that challenged... the What all movements are, the challenged fine art and what was being taught at the time. Yeah, sort of the and, academic... Yeah, the academic studies. Um, although it, you can kind of still see its influence. It's just very romantic. It's I really can't adjust. And it's probably the same as... Um, the first podcast we did where I was just like, that it just affects me so much.
0: I but it's, yeah, but it's nice when art has that effect, but it also, it has roots in the arts and crafts movement as well from William
2: Morris. Yeah, yeah, so it was very much inspired by that um, and movements in Germany and stuff. This The Art Nouveau um, was a global movement, which I don't know. When I think of Art Nouveau, as I've said, I associate it with France because this is where I'd seen it. There is a famous metro structure um it's steel framed, it's got the typography that's associated with Art Nouveau, um very much curved curved round, ornate framed to enter the subway station. It's absolutely beautiful. It's beside, it's near the Louvre, um, or one of them is. There's quite a few subway stations yeah. that have this like kind of decorative entrance. Um but it was a style that was influenced all over the world so Bringing it home in Scotland, you can see it with the Glasgow style. So that's Charles Rennie Mackintosh is probably the most iconic. Um, in Japan, it was Shiro Uma. Italy had Liberty style, and Germany and Sweden had Jugendstil, so on and so forth. So there's various. Um, it basically just stood for new style, and as I said before, the whole point was to kind of challenge the traditional fine art um that was already out there. So the characteristics of Art Nouveau was its use of natural form. Taking its inspiration from nature, they would use whiplash lines, which was basically massive curves um, in the structure. So mm. this was inspired by like flower stems and vines. Um, and it would be used to kind of create this effect of open space and also to frame their work. And they would use it within the pieces of art as well as like grand structures. So there's a famous staircase in Belgium. The yes staircase. oh so beautiful and even the walls are decorated it was just so it was just very decadent it, everything was just the idea was just to bring luxury and just keep a coherent theme it was it, I really it's just so yeah. beautiful I mean the
0: whole the whole idea behind Art Nouveau is to is at the core of it is to have art part of your everyday Yeah, and have it in a functional way very much again sort of linking back to the arts and crafts sort of mantra which they held close to them was you know surrounding yourself with art having it being a functional thing a beautiful thing and art for all
2: yeah and very much it was
0: so as i said that's episode 19 alphonse Mucha and the art nouveau with nico Pause. and that's you that is my top five highlights from 2023 Once again thank you so much for your continued support and for listening to the podcast throughout this year and I'm really looking forward to 2024 when I bring you more episodes, more guests and perhaps the return of Bite Size. If you ever want to get in touch please do and I can't wait for 2024 and to bring you all along with me. Season three will be back on January 2nd. We'll see you then. And there you have it, another episode of Joe's Art History Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, please make sure to like, rate and subscribe. It does really help in letting other people find us. You can listen to Joe's Art History Podcast on any streaming platform and you can also watch it in a video format on YouTube. If you would like to support the podcast in any way, I have now released an Amazon wish list, which you can also find in the show notes below. This will allow you to donate in part or purchase in full an art historical text that is of interest to me and that will help in research towards future episodes and it would be really wonderful if you've listened to quite a lot of these, if you could buy that as a way of marking patronage towards the podcast, that would be brilliant if you would like to get in touch please do it's always lovely to hear from people you can email me joesarthistory at gmail.com or you can get in touch with me via instagram which is at joesarthistory or you can search for my name joe mclaughlin via instagram and you will find me there that's all we have from the podcast this week thank you so much for listening once again i'll remind you to keep learning and remember art is for all Bye.